Welcome to What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander. The crossroads where culture, lifestyle, and community meet. All hosted by the legendary New York radio TV personality and proud Harlem American, G. Keith Alexander. Well, hey, thank you so very, very much. And uh, welcome to What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander. Wherever you are, I appreciate you for joining our neighborhood as we hang out together in Harlem, America. Today in the What's Hot Spotlight is Valentino Dixon. As of today, Valentino has founded the Art of Freedom Foundation, shining a light on injustice and working with lawmakers to achieve prison and sentencing reform. Additionally, Valentino has created a golf apparel line with his artwork, and his commission pieces go from $3,000 upwards to $250,000. We met recently at the Jim Beatty African American Golf Expo and Forum, and I was impressed with how Valentino has triumphed over a 27-year wrongful conviction for murder. So, it is my distinct honor and pleasure to say that Valentino Dixon is what's hot. How are you, Valentino? I'm all right, G. Keith. Thanks for having me. Oh, hey, my pleasure. I was so touched by your story when, uh, when I heard it. Uh, at the uh, African-American Golf Expo and Forum uh, that I said, well, wait a minute, I- I've got to have this brother on here to tell his story. It, uh, you know, it's, it's a story of, of triumphing, uh, triumphing, if that's, the st- <laughs> if that's the word. That's good uh, enough. Okay. <laughs> that's good enough. <laughs> it's a story of triumph over adversity, and you've become a, an, a successful entrepreneur. And so that touched me because, you know, What's Hot Harlem America uh, with G. Keith Alexander is all about uh, entertainment, empowerment, and health and wellness. And so I wanted to have you on, and I'm so happy that you uh, made time to be with us today. So let us get started. I usually ask all my guests to, uh, to uh, we take the Wayback Machine and uh, tell us what it was like growing up as little Valentino. Well, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I loved to play football, and I was an artist as a kid. Those were the two things I did. And um, I grew up in the inner city, a very tough area. And, you know, that's how I was. You know, I did pretty good in school, and I eventually went to performing arts uh, high school for artwork. Okay, and then... And, uh... and I'm also my only child. You're the only child. Okay, so you're yeah. probably spoiled too, right? Uh, Not at all. That's no, no, no. My parents wouldn't spoil me. They made me work hard. My father owned a, a boutique and a, a little candy shop. And mm-hmm. every day after school, I would have to work in this candy shop. I mean, cleaning uh, windows and floors and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, so, what did you want to actually become as a little kid? What what dreams did you have? Well, I wanted to be a professional football player. I wanted, you know, to play in the NFL. I was a great wide receiver, like the best in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody could nobody could check me. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I just did. I just didn't have the hands or the speed. I had the route running, everything. I mean, I started playing football at five years old. Really? Mm-hmm. So let us go to because uh, you know I'm the uh, our audience. Uh, we're, we're going to surprise them. We're, we're going to shock them with some stuff today, boy. I'm telling you, they're not ready. They are not ready for this. 
So, yes. so, so tell us now, your life changed around, uh, what, 1990? Uh, no, let's yeah, see, was it 1990? No, August 10th, 1991, my mother's birthday. Okay. W- what happened? Yeah. Well, I was hanging out with some friends at a popular uh, night spot, and a shooting occurred. And everybody scattered. I ran in my car, pulled away, took off. And shortly thereafter, I was pulled over by the police, taken into custody, and I was told that I committed this shooting. Okay. And I knew the person that committed the shooting, okay, because there was some problems brewing in the air before it actually started. Mm-hmm. You know, but of course, I kept my mouth shut, and they charged me with murder, attempted murder, and assault. Three people were shot. And? And? Um, Two days after my arrest, the person responsible for the crime turned himself in and explained what happened, and he was disregarded and told to leave the police station. And then seven eyewitnesses came forward because there was over 70 or 80 people out there, and this is a fact. And those people were all disregarded, African-American people, went and told the detectives that I didn't commit the shooting. And the detectives had already had their minds made up and they were not going to admit that they made a mistake. They had already paraded me on the news. They took my clothes. They took my car. And they actually told me that if I fired a weapon, of course, it would powder, gunpowder residue and forensics would prove this. Mm-hmm. And so long story short, they never turned over the results to the clothing. So... And they disregarded the witnesses. So 10 months later, I found myself going to trial with a public defender. I didn't have any money to uh, afford an attorney. And I went to court and my public defender did not call any of these witnesses and did not introduce the confession to the jury because we had a, a confession mm-hmm. and he didn't, the jury didn't even know this guy confessed. They didn't even know about the witnesses. The Lord didn't call any of them. And they gave me a 39 year life sentence. 39-year life sentence? Yes, 39 years to life sentence. Wow. So, all right. So now you find yourself in an environment that is completely foreign to you. Uh, and you, uh, I'm, I'm sure you were mm-hmm. probably depressed and, and so forth. Uh, and you didn't pick up your art until when? Well, I was not just depressed. Of course, I was afraid. There's so much going on. I was a young guy. I was only 21 years old uh, when I found myself in Attica Correctional Facility, which is one of the worst prisons in America, as far as I'm concerned. You know, uh, the abuse that goes on inside and the violence, the everyday violence is just is just barbaric. And so I was young and, you know, and I was still developing as a as a young man. And so seven years went by. And my uncle said, hey, if you can reclaim your talent, you can reclaim your life. You know, and at the time, I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? And all my appeals had been denied. Here I am seven years later, all my appeals denied. And I wasn't doing much with myself, but I was doing a lot of reading and I was working out. And when he says, hey, if you can reclaim your talent, you claim your life. I hadn't drawn in eight years. No painting, no pencils, no nothing. I was very good at this. And um, he sent me some colored pencils. 
And of course, I was in the procrastination stage. So I took the pencils and the paper and I put it up, you know, and he kept bothering me about it. I would call my uncle once a month and he lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time, you know, and he would say, hey, you get started yet? And I'm like, mm, not yet. He said, hey, you may have to draw yourself out of prison. I'm like, what are you <laughs> talking about? Like, how's I'm going to draw myself out of prison? <laughs> you know, but anyway, he, he bothered me and bothered me and he made me feel bad. You know, I started to feel guilty about the talent that I had that I was not utilizing. You know, even though I was in the sixth body prison cell, there were other guys around me that were pretty good artists. They didn't mm-hmm. even know I could draw or paint. I never even told them. I was embarrassed, you know. And so I decided to draw a rose. And when I drew the rose, everybody were coming by the cell and saying, you're an artist? Oh, wow, you drew that? You didn't draw that. We've been around you for years. What the <laughs> hell no, you didn't draw that, you know? And that kind of gave me the inspiration that, okay, maybe I, I still have the talent and maybe I can utilize this talent. And after that, I started drawing every day up to 10 hours a day. I didn't take no days off. And that became a routine for me. So if I wasn't reading or working out or drawing, you know, um, I was working in a, um, as a barber inside the prison three days a week because you got to have a prison job, you know. So my days were filled up with drawing and, 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 and reading. Up to 10 hours a day I was drawing, okay. And as time went on, I started to get become really, really good, you know. And I was self-taught, you know. I had mm. to learn techniques all on my own. I had to figure things out. And the more you put into something, the better you're going to become. You know, and that's with anything, I believe. And so here's some of the drawings that I did right here. This is an abstract. Thank you. Okay. So I have more abstract. Very nice. Okay. Uh, And then I'll... mm -hmm. I would like to, uh, if we could have copies of those that we could put yeah, on sure. the, uh, yeah, we can put on your brand support page. That'd be great. Fantastic. Beautiful. Man, you're quite talented. Hey. And then I'm going to just show you one more. This is African-American art that I did. Oh, man, that's incredible. Thank wow. you. And these are, all, these are all pencil drawings. Really? So those are all color pencil. So the paint, the paints in the prison were so regulated that you couldn't have oil painting. You could have, you had to only have acrylic and watercolor, and then you could only have three brushes, mm-hmm. you know, and I couldn't have a canvas. So I just took to the color pencils and the paper. And the goal was eventually after about 10 years was to make the drawings look like paintings. So a lot of people see my stuff and they say, Hey, that's a nice painting, but they're all drawings. <laughs> ah. Yes. And, and, and you learned that in prison? I learned it in that six by prison cell over a course of time. You know, and I had this, so I did a lot of reading also. And I had read that an artist doesn't really come into his own until he has at least 10 years of just constant work repetitious. Mm-hmm. 10 years, mm-hmm. whether it's a painter or a drawer or, you know, a sculptor. You know, yeah. Well, okay. So now, I I understand the warden used to come by your cell, and used to ask you uh, how your. Uh... Well, well, let me back up. Okay. So in between, in between drawing, 
for up to 10 hours a day. I was constantly working on my case also. And going up to the prison law library, you know, just trying to figure out how did these people convict me? How did they get away with it? I knew nothing about the law. So now I'm reading case law. I'm working on my case. And now I'm writing letters to lawyers all throughout the country. Please help me. Who's going to believe me that eight witnesses clear me in the confession? It's like, there's no way this, this guy made this up, you know? And so I'm writing lawyers and I'm learning that lawyers don't, people don't like to read 10 page letters. So you have to adjust all of these things and you have to be able to put all the facts into one or two pages. Otherwise nobody's going to read it, <laughs> you know? And so just things like this that you learn along the way. And so I'm writing the media, I'm writing lawyers. And finally, um, a reporter out of Buffalo, out of my hometown, he finally says, I'm going to look into your case. At the time, I had the police reports. I had all the police. I had the witness statements. I had the confession. I had everything that I was saying I could prove it, you know, and it just wasn't talk. And so I sent the reporter a package, you know, he went through it and couldn't believe it. He said, this really did happen. So then he asked for my trial transcripts. When he read the trial, he says, I'm going to write about this. And over a course of two years, he wrote eight articles about my wrongful conviction. Mm -hmm. And still, the judge and the prosecutor said, we have the right man. Okay. Really? So, yes. So, and, you know, and I got a lawyer who was able to raise money, get a lawyer. Uh, he hired a private investigator who came in and gave me a polygraph test. I passed the polygraph test. We filed this, all these evidence with the court, and it was still rejected without a hearing, without an explanation. You know, so now we have a cover-up, and it's political, and which is real. And people, a lot of times people don't want to hear that. You know, so everybody's covering for each other now. Mm -hmm. uh, the fellow judges... You know, and the federal judges that turn a blind eye. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. They turned a blind eye. Mm -hmm. Okay. And all this evidence was filed. And so the warden would come by. The staff knew I was innocent in, in, um, in the prison because they had read about it. So nobody, nobody had any doubt about me being innocent. So the warden would come by and he says, hey, how's everything going, Valentino? I said, oh, I'm just waiting. I'm still waiting, you know. And. Just before he retired, he said, I'm going to retire in about three months. You know, could you draw a picture for me before I retire? And normally I wouldn't draw a picture for the staff. That's a no-no. You know, I'm in Attica Correctional Facility. You know, I've built a reputation of being a stand-up guy. And you don't want to ruin that by being too close to the staff. <laughs> you know, people, you know, this is a penitentiary, man. You know, mm -hmm. so... But this particular warden was, and we went through about six wardens when I was there. This one here was the only warden that would stand up for us when we were right. When they were not, you know, giving us privileges that we should have had, he stood up and he made those dumb guards give us these privileges. So I decided I got to draw a picture for this guy, you know, and he wanted me to draw the 12th hole of Augusta, a golf course. I didn't know anything about golf. I never golfed before. I'm a black kid from inner city. All right, bring it in. I'll draw the picture for you. And I drew it. He loved it. Here's the 12th hole of Augusta drawing that I did in prison. Boy, that is intricate. That Thank you. Incredible. It's so beautiful. Thank you. So 
I drew the picture for him. He loved it. I'm done with it. What do I know about golf? Anything related to it? Absolutely nothing. So my neighbor, a white guy, he says, hey, Valentino, about a week later, see, I think you should draw some more golf folks. Like, that was a cool drawing that you did for the warden. Like, I'm like, hell no, I'm not drawing more golf holes. I'm going back to my abstract, my artwork, the uh, black art, African art, animals, landscapes, people. I do everything under the sun, but I'm not about to draw no golf courses. So a week later, about a week later, I come home. Well, I come in from a child, and I have two Golf Digest magazines on my bed, old issues. So my neighbor said, hey, I got them from the guy upstairs. If um, you don't want him, just toss him out because he gets a subscription every month. You know, maybe you might find some cool golf drawings, you know, golf courses in there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, about a week later, I started going through the pages and pulling out some of the cool golf course courses that I saw, you know. And then eventually I started drawing these golf courses. And then I started drawing them all the time. And it got to the point where I wasn't drawing anything but golf courses. You know, it, yeah, it was crazy. It was, it was crazy. The guards were coming by. All the inmates were saying, oh, oh, these golf joints are so cool. And I had never golfed, and a lot of them had never golfed, but they loved the golf drawings. It was strange. You know, and I thought a lot of those guys was going to turn on me because, like, what the hell are you doing drawing golf courses? <laughs> you know, and, but to my surprise, everybody was elated. And I just kept drawing them and drawing them and drawing them. And then eventually I started reading the issues in the Golf Digest magazine. I wasn't just drawing the courses. I was actually reading the articles. And, you know, it's, it's no different than us growing in stages in life. You know what I'm saying? We all grow mm-hmm. in stages. And as, a, as an artist, I was growing. As a golf artist, I was growing in stages. So I actually started reading the content in the magazines, you know. Well- well, uh, Valentino, let me interrupt for a moment because we've got okay. to uh, go to a quick break. But I okay. want to come back and, and I want you to tell us more about this fascinating story and uh, how you have uh, not only become an artist, but you are you've been nominated three times for an Emmy and mm-hmm. uh, you are wearing one of your golf prints uh, as part of your your merchandise. Mm-hmm. So we'll be right back to talk yeah. more of this. Uh, with uh, Mr. Valentino Dixon. Thank you for listening to What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander, and uh, we'll be right back. Have you ever thought about hosting your own radio podcast to establish fame, fortune, and followers for your small business? People listen to them, they subscribe to them, and they love them. As a small black business owner, doesn't that sound like something you'd like to be a part of? Well, you can when you hire the radio podcast pros at Harlem America Digital Network. Imagine, you'll have a team of creative and technical professionals at your disposal and a one-hour weekly radio podcast to spread the word about your business. Making your business successful with its own media is not not for the faint of heart, but it can happen with a Harlem America radio podcast talk show. Get a free consultation by emailing gkeithalexander at harlemamerica.com or call D. Daniels at 480-553-5741 today. You're listening to Harlem America. I love it a lot. For entertainment. Check it out. Check it out. Empowerment and health and wellness. Harlem America. The home of Glenn.
Lasso Smart Water is Harlem America. Harlem America, where Coca-Cola is helping you enjoy less sugar. You're listening to Harlem America, talking to the world from the heart and soul of New York. You're listening to What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander. To reach our show live today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Also, you can send an email to Alexander at harlemamerica.com. Now, back to the show. We're here with Mr. Valentino Dixon. I love that name, Valentino. <clears throat> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, he's a... Uh, an artist. Uh, he is an exoneree and a three-time uh, Emmy nominee. And we're going to find out more about his fascinating life. Uh, and, and we're talking to him now. And if you're just joining us, uh, Valentino is in prison. <laughs> and uh, he's going to tell us all about that. Okay, continue, Valentino. Well, G. Keith, I'm not in prison. Well, I'm talking about that, <laughs> right, not, right. not sitting yeah. in prison right yeah, now, yeah, but, but where we left of, off, yeah, right. where we left off, you were in prison. Yes, sir. Um, so I had about 20 years in on this wrongful conviction, and I'm known as the artist in Attica now. And the warden asked me to draw his favorite golf hole. I drew it for him. He loved it. And my neighbor said I should draw more golf holes. Of course, I said, it's not going to happen. You know, and he tossed these old Golf Digest magazines on my bunk. I started reading through them, and I came across a column by Max Adler called Golf Saved My Life. And every month, Max would write about some hardship or challenge that someone was going through, and the only time they felt better is when they golfed, okay? One guy had lost his, his arm in the Iraqi war, and the only time he, his spirit felt invigorated is when he golfed. And so I correlated that what I was going through. I, I had 20 years in on a wrongful conviction. And I'm sitting here drawing golf courses. By then, I had drew about 40 golf course drawings. And so I took one of the drawings, and I wrote a four-page letter to Max, and I explained to him what happened to me. Of course, I didn't expect for him to respond or to write back or even believe anything I was saying, but I thought that, I could get his attention by sending him one of the drawings, you know, and it did. He got his attention and he asked me, could he read my trial transcripts? I had my mom send him my trial transcripts. And I'm going to say a couple weeks later, he says, you were set up. No doubt about it. After reading my trial. And he says, we've never covered uh, anyone in prison. (laughs) We've never did anything like this. But we are going to put your story in the Golf Digest magazine. And in July um, 2012, they published a three-page article. Okay. And from there, um, the Golf Channel came on board. And they did a short documentary, which is nominated for Emmy Award. And after that, all the major news outlets in America started writing about my story you know, which put a lot of pressure on the prosecutor's office to do the right thing. 
And the prosecutor was actually interviewed and, you know, asked, hey, you got all of this evidence that he didn't commit this crime. You know, all of these witnesses, you have this confession from the person that committed the crime. Are you sure you have the right person in prison? So finally, after, you know, 20 something years, the prosecutor says, you know, I'm only human. I could have made a mistake. Okay. Mm. Mm. Right. Now, was that enough to get me out of prison? Absolutely not. His boss says, no, we're going to stick with the verdict. Okay. So I had to linger in prison another five years. So on my 26th year in prison, Georgetown uh, law students decided that they wanted to use my case as a class project. Okay. Which I agreed to do. And I work with the students every day for the next six months. And then they decided that they wanted to do a documentary of their own. So I said, okay, this is cool. Why don't you reach out to the prosecutor's office and I'll formulate the questions. And I believe that we can uh, gather some evidence from this, you know, and the attorney I had at the time says, absolutely not. I don't think that's a good idea. And I said, absolutely. Yes, it is a good idea. This is what these students, this is what these students are going to do. By then, I had seven attorneys over those 26 years, mm. okay? And not one of them could get me a hearing, okay? None of them um, got a favorable decision from me. So by then, you know, I felt like there's no way I'm going to second guess myself here. I have nothing to lose. I knew quite a bit about the law. Nobody knew my case better than me, you know? And I laid out the questions for the students. And they reached out to the prosecutor's office and they agreed to do an interview. So while during this interview, I had the students ask the prosecutor about the clothing that they took from me when I was arrested. They took my clothes, my sneakers, they took my car, um, everything. They confiscated this stuff to see if I fired a weapon. Okay. And when they took this stuff to the lab, of course, it came back negative. You know, that I didn't fire anything, but they didn't turn over the documentation for that. Okay. And I knew that documentation existed, but they didn't turn it over. And so I asked the students to question them about these documents that was never turned over and what happened to the document. So the prosecutor, you know, uh, out of nowhere said, hey, yeah, well, we tested all of those articles and that all came back negative. Okay. But what he failed mm-hmm. to realize is that once he admitted that he had created a Brady violation because he didn't oh. turn over the documentation. And if you don't turn over documentation, it's a ex- exculpatory evidence is uh, grounds for a new trial. OK, because they had violated my most basic fundamental fundamental constitutional right to a fair trial. You know, they hid exculpatory evidence. They didn't turn over the Brady material. And I knew I had them, okay, because I, 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 I cried about this at my sentencing. They ignored it. You know, they acted like the evidence didn't exist. So I had it on the record. And then I had actually had the police reports where they confiscated my clothes and my car. So now mm-hmm. I have this documentation, but you didn't turn over the findings, okay? And so... I don't know, about a month later, my lawyer came to visit me and he says, the prosecutor is going to drop the charges. So after 27, (laughs) yeah, yes. So after 27 years, you know, I walked out of prison a free man. 
Incredible story. Uh, and for you to have the uh, strength and the, uh, the, the commitment to, uh, to get to the truth uh, and to have, I mean, God just lined everything up for you that mm-hmm. these people just came into your life to, to uh, make sure mm-hmm. that uh, you got out. So you were in for 27 years. Yes. What was your first feeling? How did you feel when you walked out of that prison? Well, G. Keith, let me say this. And I'm going to back up a little bit. Okay. Okay. When I was sitting at six by a prison cell, I didn't just draw for up to 10 hours a day. Eventually, over those 27 years, I read over 600 books. Okay. Mm. I'm, I'm talking about business books, history books, self-help books. Name the book I've read it, you know. And what I learned was is this, is that we're all going to be tested with something in life when we don't get to decide to test. Okay? And I see so much human suffering while I was in that prison cell that God was blessing me with this beautiful artwork. So there's no way that I was going to give up. So that's what kept me going is that I thought of the 10-year-old kid that was dying of cancer is not going to see his 11-year-old birthday. You know, I thought about what slaves went through. Born a slave, died a slave. Imagine that. Your whole life is, is, is in bondage. Okay? And, I, and, you know, and I went in at 21, and I was, now I was 48 years old. You know, so I try to relate to the people throughout history who went through the worst of conditions. Okay. And, 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 and then I said, you know what, you got to be grateful, you know, and a lot of people don't get that, you know, so I was not going to give up. I was going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until those doors open. So once I got out, now the real work begins and people's like, why are you doing all this stuff, running around doing all this stuff? Started a prison reform foundation you know, got my website set up, you know, got some art shows uh, going. I had one in New York City and the galleries and, you know, the art world wasn't too fun to Res- me. They, right. didn't, they didn't respect what I had accomplished. I had over 300 pieces of artwork, you know, and they didn't really want to have anything to do with me, you know, even though I was innocent, even though I was innocent. You know, it's like, yeah, whatever. We, you know, but they did one show for me, and then I had another show in Florida, and they wanted fifty percent. You know, I'm a math guy, okay, and I did all this reading, you know, all these great business books. So I'm not going to allow you to exploit me or anything else. You know, I'm not, I'm not hard to get along with either. You know, um, so I said, you know what, you got to do this on your own. And what I did was I set up my website, did some marketing, you know. Every month, there was somebody coming to interview me. Somebody wanted to interview me from somewhere, some media outlet. And I did all the interviews. I've done over 100 interviews since I've been home. Some days, I've done three interviews in one day. Really? <laughs> you know? Yes. So from that, I start, and, you know, I represent myself on my artwork, mm-hmm. you know. And so celebrities and other people start reaching out, you know, uh, doctors, you know, different people that love artwork. And, you know... So I brokered all my own deals. You know, so some, and, I'm, I'm sorry, I was going to say some of the people with your artwork, Michelle Obama, uh, John uh, McEnroe, uh, what was it, John McEnroe? Yeah, John McEnroe, yes. The 10 is great John McEnroe. Steph Curry. Steph Curry, Damian Lillard. Uh, Jack I've Nicholson. 
Jack Nicholas. Jack um, Nicholas, yes. Yeah. Um, I've done artwork for Rocket Mortgage, other companies. Um, and without an agent, without a manager. And by the way, I do need an agent and a manager, but nobody stepped up to, you know, to try to work with me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I just do everything on my own. And I've been extremely successful that way, you know. Um, so I started my clothing line, my golf clothing line, which is nothing like it in the world. I have one of the shirts on. Yes, and I actually do. have I actually have a hat and <laughs> socks that match. <laughs> yes, incredible. You know? Incredible. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, how did that idea, the, the idea for merchandise well, come about? Well, the thing is, is this. One thing I learned about when art galleries, you know, don't want to give you a way in, then you have to think of ways to like, I design greeting cards, for example. Here's a card right here that I designed. Mm-hmm. It's just a plain greeting mm-hmm. card. And I have mm-hmm. a whole line of these, you know. So you have to find ways to put your products on other uh, things, like, you know, whether it's a carpet, you know, hats, you know, and you have to market yourself. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to be able to pay the bills. <laughs> wow. So, uh, all right, well, have you picked up a golf club yet? I've golfed about eight times, and I'm no good at it. Just my <laughs> swing is forget about it. Horrible. <laughs> yeah, you, you and I both, uh, we're about the same, uh, same level of golfing. Uh, so how did you meet uh, Jim Beatty? Now, uh, now, Jim is a okay. dear friend of mine. Uh, mm-hmm. We've met in third grade, and, and, and Jim uh, uh, put on the uh, golf uh, mm-hmm. Expo and forum that you right. and I met at the African American Golf right. uh, uh, Expo right. and forum. Uh, how did you meet Jim? Well, Jim reached out, and like I said, every month there's at least one or two people reaching out, and he told me who he was and what he was trying to do, and I loved the guy because of his personality, and he just seemed to be down earth, you know. So I said, sure, I'm all the way in. And I went out to this expo and took some of this merchandise, stuff like this. We got mm-hmm. the shirt. We got the matching socks. You know, yes. And we got this. I saw that. I even got for the woman's visor, the man's hat. Mm-hmm. And we got the matching sock. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I did pretty good out there. You know, I did, it's a start. I did pretty good. You know, I have a in, inventory, man. Let me tell you something. I got $2 million worth of inventory that I just ordered. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I believe in investing in myself. You know, don't ask me where I'm going to put all of this inventory. You know, um, Dick's Sporting Goods store said they're going to test, test the inventory out in a couple stores. Mm-hmm. You know, people love it. They say I've never seen anything like it. So they love, they love the golf apparel. I know there's nothing out there like it. You know, it's fashionable, you know, and let's see where it goes. You know, at the same time, last week I visited 31 golf courses myself. You did? Yeah, visit 31 golf courses, you know, and I got brochures that I pass out. The manager is there, the pro shop manager is there and give me a call. And I'm just, you know, pushing the pavement, man, just pushing, just doing, pushing the limit. Yes. And these these thirty one golf courses, the uh, I, I I take it you weren't driving, you were flying to all these various places. Oh no, I was. Well, I'm down in Augusta, Georgia. I'm originally from New York, but mm-hmm. I'm down in Augusta, Georgia. So, 
all the golf courses I went to was from either South Carolina uh, and Georgia. I see. Boy, you're an enterprising young man. So, all right, well, tell us a little bit about the uh, foundation. Okay. So my prison reform foundation uh, is called uh, Art of Freedom Foundation, and I focus on wrongful convictions and sentencing guidelines in America. Because the reason why we have over 2.3 million people incarcerated because our sentencing guidelines are, are harsh and excessive and it violates the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution against cruel and unusual punishment. That is the issue here. Okay. And until you reduce these sentencing guidelines, then you're going to have 2.3 million people incarcerated. I have friends that were sentenced to 20 years and are still sitting in prison on a 40 years. Even they were given 20 years, but they're sitting in prison after 40 years because the parole board refuses to release them even if they have proved that they have re, 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 rehabilitated themselves and no longer a threat to society. It's a numbers game. They need to keep these sales filled, you know, and it's also a very lucrative business for a certain class of people. That is the problem. And until America, you know, uh, supports that we need prison reform, you know, then it's going to continue to be the way it is. Lawmakers is not going to pass anything that really means anything. You know, and this is why I have this foundation to help as many people as possible. You know, I write letters for guys for clemency, for parole. I've helped a couple guys get parole because of my letters. And I helped one guy get uh, a reduction because I wrote the judge on his behalf and saved him a seven years in prison. But these mm -hmm. are isolated cases. We need as a whole, we need all the prison reform foundations to come together. OK, all the uh, activists that support uh, prison reform to come together because spread out, we're not getting anywhere. You know, they're passing these laws that don't really mean anything because the people are still incarcerated, you know, and this is not just the constitutional rights violation or, is you know, it's a human rights violation. It's not just a civil rights violation, it, you know, and we're the only country that has 2.3 million people incarcerated. And in fact, China has a population three times, eight times our size, and, but only have a million prisoners. We're yeah. going to take a short break right now, uh, Valentino, and uh, we'll be right back. I want to remind people that they could go to HarlemAmerica.com and check out some of our, uh, our shows, audio and video, and some of our articles. And, of course, Valentino will have his uh, brand support page with this podcast if you want to uh, listen again or and let some of your friends uh, know about it. Uh, he'll have a, his brand support page, and on his page will be some of his merchandise, some of his golf merchandise that I'm looking at right now, and some of his artwork. So check us all out at HarlemAmerica.com, and we'll be right back. Have you ever thought about hosting your own radio podcast to establish fame, fortune, and followers for your small business? People listen to them, they subscribe to them, and they love them. As a small black business owner, doesn't that sound like something that you'd like to be a part of? 
Well, you can when you hire the radio podcast pros at Harlem America Digital Network. Imagine you'll have a team of creative and technical professionals at your disposal and a one-hour weekly radio podcast to spread the word about your business. Making your business successful with its own media is not for the faint at heart, but it can happen with a Harlem America radio podcast talk show. Get a free consultation by emailing gkeithalexander at harlemamerica.com or call D. Daniels at 480-553-5741 today. Harlem, America. It's about Harlem. Harlem is my town. Carver Bank, where 80% of every dollar is reinvested in the community. Harlem, America, the home of Coca-Cola Zero. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. You're listening to What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander. To reach our show live today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Also, you can send an email to gkeithalexander at harlemamerica.com. Now, back to the show. Okie dokie. Now, uh, you know, 27 years behind bars for a crime you did not commit uh, I'm sure there must be, or some days that you were really angry. Uh, how did you deal with that, the anger? Well, you definitely have your ups and downs. Okay. And of course I was angry, but one thing I learned is that when people wrong you, if you allow yourself to become bitter and it changes your spirit and who you are as a person. And I just couldn't allow that to happen. Okay. I wasn't going to give them that type of power over me. You know, my mother's a different story. I'm her only child and I was arrested on her birthday. So this really did something to her mental and she's not forgiving like me. You know, I actually forgave these people who did this to me, you know, and I put it in God's hands. What was it like, uh, adjusting on the outside well it wasn't hard adjusting after 27 years and a lot of people say how is that impossible like it wasn't hard because actually you know once i realized that god had a purpose for me i began to live on the outside with you guys anyway so part of my time was inside the prison because i needed to know what was going on at all times for my own safety and because that's where I was at. But the other part was I took my brain and, hey, in any given moment, I can take myself to France or mm-hmm. Africa. Or, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to be eating cheesecake and steak and lobster. 
you know, <laughs> even, even, yeah, even though I'm eating soup tonight and beans, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so you, you know, the mind could, can be wherever it wants to be. And so what I did was this, I, I, you know, I said to myself, there's no way that I'm going to be stuck in 1991 whenever I do get out. I see mm-hmm. guys, you know, get out and come right back. It was a revolving door. You know, some of them committed suicide. They couldn't deal with the change on the outside, you know, after doing 20, 30 years, you know, and I just could not become that type of a victim, you know, and I refused to. So what I would do is this. I would quiz everybody. I'm going to school on everybody, whether it's the guards, the young inmates. They're going to tell me everything that's going on out in the world, why I need an iPhone and, you know, and what, why, what's good about an Android, you know, and, you know, just keeping up to date with the technology, you know, how do I store my artwork on a USB? I never used a computer computer before. I know nothing about nothing like this, you know, but I do know that I need to store my artwork on a USB now, you know? So when I would send my artwork home, I would tell my mom, okay, you have to go and you have to go buy a USB, you know, and then I need you to go to a printing place and I need you to have them scan my artwork on to that USB. So when I came home, you know, I had about, 25 USBs waiting for me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, you know, and my mom, she guarded my artwork like, you know, like it was, you know, some type of fortress or something like that. You know, she mm-hmm. she made sure nobody, family members, nobody got to it. She, she had it hidden and cross spaces in her house and different things like that. And she even had a fire that damaged the whole top part of the house. And the artwork was the only thing that was saved. Praise God. Wow. Yes. Wow. So, so it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, so just let me just say this. So adjusting to the outside wasn't a hard thing because, you know, we don't – there's people out here that don't know what's going on, you know. And I'm on the phone with people while I was in prison, and I was like, you know, they used to call me the black Dr. Phil because I gave everybody advice. You know, family members were going through all kinds of stuff. Whenever I call home, I would have to be the voice of reason, you know, mm. and I and eventually I became the voice of reason inside the prison yard, you know, with the gang members and trying to take over the phones and all this other madness that was going on. So, you know, I mean, that's the purpose that God gave for me. So walking out of here was just like, this is what it is. Oh, I didn't know about that. OK, that's cool. You know, and all right, let me adjust to this. I'm, I'm walking out of a prison cell. So anything is better than being on that little thin mattress that mess your body up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah I mean, you can go yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't no hard adjustment at all because I knew exactly what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go, what I was going to stay away from, who I didn't want around me, the type of love I wanted in my life, the type of positivity that I was going to have around me. And I seen the mess that everybody's dealing with out here. And I wasn't going to deal with that type of mess. This is why I'm in Augusta right now, and you can hear the birds chirp. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so we know that, that prison is a terrible place, and there's a lot yes. of violence going on in prison. Mm-hmm. Is, is there anything that you can tell us uh, a, a, a good story or, or, or anything that, that uh, happened in prison that uh, touched your heart in a good way? Wow. The thing about it is this, is that prison, you don't have anything. So you have to work with what you have. 
and then you have to be creative. So I was around the guys that we all kept each other's spirits strong. You know, of course, there were a couple of troublemakers, but we all knew who they were, you know, and they didn't damper our spirits. You know, so I mean, you got guys in there who are funnier than Eddie Murphy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. You know, and so they're going to say something that's going to make you laugh. And we were all we all supported each other and made each. So it's no one particular thing that that stands out at this time. I can tell you all I know is that when I walked out of there, many of those guys were crying. They were actually crying tears, you know, and they were happy for me. But um, they also knew that things would change for them inside, you know, because I I helped out a lot of guys. How were you but, able to? Uh, how were you able to stay out of trouble? Well, I stayed out of trouble for one. The artwork kept me busy. Mm-hmm. Everything I was doing was positive, and there was so much negativity around me that I had to help keep a balance. So I was like that balance. I was the guy that talked people down and stopped guys from killing each other over a three dollar uh, debt. You know, wow. and um, so. Yeah, that's what God put me there for, you know, and now he's utilizing me out here in the outside world to go speak to kids in the inner city about, you know, making the right choices, believing in themselves and just knowing their self-worth. And, and, and you know, because I grew up in a neighborhood, a lot of my kid friends got killed while I was in prison, you know, or came to prison. They end up in penitentiary with me, even though I was innocent, they ended up in penitentiary, you know, and actually some of them were innocent, believe it or not. Uh, two of my friends was exonerated like me over the mm. years, you know. So Buffalo has a problem with wrongful convictions. There's been about 10 wrongful convictions, exonerations in the last 20 years, you know. And um, those are serious numbers for a small place like that. Um, but now, you know, I got guys, 10, 20 guys calling me from prison right now. I send out full packages. You know, I write letters. I visit guys. I do all of those things in between my busy schedule, you know. So there's never no time for me to relax, but I am going to take some time off of myself in about six months because I I need it. When you walk back through the doors to visit guys, uh, how how does that feel to you personally? Uh, Does it bring back memories and thoughts of? uh, Yeah, Well, well, yes. Because I know what they're going through, and I knew what my family was subjected to just for being processed, you know, waiting two hours just because they don't want to process you until they feel like it. Or they can get through finished eating their lunch and talking to each other and chatting, and then they say, all right, let's process these five people. So, I mean, it never ends. It's still going on today. But, you know, when I walk through there, I mean, I'm not traumatized in no sense, and I don't have any deep feelings or anything. I just know that I'm there to help that person I'm going to visit and possibly help others inside that prison. So I don't have time for anything to really be affecting me like that, to be honest with you, because there's too much work to do, <laughs> you know, and anything like, you know, you just got to accept whatever comes to your life and you have to deal with it with faith, you know, and you, and you, you know, and you got to brush it off every day. We're dealing with something, you know, something somewhere, some issue. And, you know, some things you don't have no control over. And you, those things that you don't have no control over, you leave it in God's hands. Okay. And the things that we do have control over, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you have to find a solution. You can't throw your hands up in the air 
You can't say, all right, I had enough. I don't want to, you know, go through this no more. This is too much for me. Nope. Mm -hmm. You got to figure it out. In you your, gotta figure it all out, Keith. You have to figure it out. Uh, mm-hmm. If you could do anything over again, is, is, would, it, would, would you have made a different choice? Anything? or? Uh, no. You know, I needed to go through everything I went through in order to be the person I am today. And, you know, there's so much I want to do. I want to go back to my neighborhood. I want to, I want to, I mean, it's vacant house. My street, almost all the houses is gone. You know, they have deer coming through there at night now. And the wildlife has taken over my neighborhood. And this is the inner city we're talking about because everything is tore down. The house is is empty. There's no, there's no community center for the kids. There's nothing. So I don't want to just make a lot of money now. I'm, I want to make a lot of money so I can help people, like really help them in a significant way. I want to build homes on my block, my neighborhood. I want to build a community center. I want to teach these kids about entrepreneurship. You know, I want to show them something before I leave this planet because it don't seem like it's going to happen if, you know, if, if I don't push and make it happen. Nobody's done anything the whole time I was gone. You are not only a... Uh intelligent man but you're a beautiful spirit and you're very generous in wanting to uh, give back and 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 help these kids and uh, we're very happy that we had the opportunity to not only meet you but but speak with you for this entire hour we're we've got about uh, two minutes left i'd like for you to uh, very succinctly uh speak to some of the kids and uh let them know that there's a better way okay Thanks for that, and I appreciate those kind words. Uh, what I want to say to the kids of America is that you have to believe in yourself, and you need to know that you are different and unique from anyone else. You don't need to be like other people. Accept yourself, embrace who you are, and don't be ashamed that you're different. You should be different. You don't want to be like the masses, you know, and life is not going to be easy all the time. And it shouldn't be easy all the time, because if it was, you wouldn't know what real uh, joy would feel like. So just know that you're going to go through some challenges. It's going to be rough, you know, but if you hang in there and you stay strong, then everything's going to work out for you. And always remember, the things you can't control, you leave it in God's hands. The things that you can control, like making good choices and, you know, following your vision and using your talent and whatever talent you have to its full capacity because wasted talent is the worst thing that we can do in life is have an ability to do something and not utilize it. So keep that in mind that life is not going to be perfect. And tell our, our audience where they can check out your merchandise. You can check out my merchandise at ValentinoDixon.com. You can also check me out on Instagram because I post inspirational videos uh, all the time at Valentino Dixon on Instagram. And then my website is ValentinoDixon.com. And it shows artwork. I have merchandise shirts and stuff like that. Thank you, Valentino, for taking this time. Uh, We're very happy that uh, we had this chance to talk with you and uh, stay in contact. If we can help you in any way, Harlem America is here to uh to do so ladies and gentlemen thank you so very very much uh this has been what's hot harlem america with g keith alexander and check us out next friday but hey in the meantime you can download the app for your tv 
And you can download the app on your cell phone, and you can always go to the website, harlemamerica.com. Have a great day and a better one tomorrow. Don't judge your brother or sister too harshly and do walk the mile in his or her shoes. And remember, life is tough, but you're tougher. Have a great day and a better one tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander. We'll be back next Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. in New York on the Voice America Variety Channel and the Harlem America Digital Network. Thank you for listening.